And three, two, one. Dustin, hello again. Hello, Jonathan. We are back doing another episode, uh, which is exciting because yours is still the most popular episode I've ever done. So it still has the most views, uh, pretty much. So. so that means two things. Either people really liked it, yeah. or a lot of people were uh, channel surfing. Or one, one <laughs> or the other. So there are a couple options there. I think, in all honesty, I think it's the topic that we discussed because we talked a lot about mental health, which is something that people are very interested in right now, which is mm-hmm. interesting. And it's I, I'm just going to bring this up real quick before we talk about what we were originally going to talk about. It was not, I think it was probably just a, maybe even a week after our conversation that articles, all the articles came out about the mental health and the pills that they don't really actually work a whole lot. And it was... Yeah, out of the University of London. Yeah. Study. I, I think I caught it on the front end. Yeah, right before it hit like out. big news. And then all the companies were like, yeah, actually, that's true. They don't actually help a whole lot. It was your podcast that brought that to light. Yeah, absolutely. You heard it here heard first, folks. But So one of the things that we were talking about uh, is morality and um, the nature of ideas. We discussed a little bit the last time, I think. But I wanted to read a little short passage from... One of my all-time favorite books, which is the Screwtape Letters, which I'm sure that I've mentioned uh, several times on the podcast before, um, by one of my all-time favorite authors, which is C.S. Lewis. And for those that don't know, uh, Screwtape Letters is um, what's called an epistolary work of fiction. So it's all letters back and forth. And they're letters from a senior demon to his nephew, Wormwood, and the older demon, the senior demon's name is Screwtape. And so each one is writing, giving him uh, Wormwood advice on how to better tempt his, what they call the patient. So this is like the very first letter written. I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you supposed that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing, and they were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons... We have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed, ever since he was a little boy, to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing around together inside his head. And that's a very, I, I don't often mark up books, but I did mark up this one um, because there's so much to note in there. And I actually highlighted that, that passage. Your man has been accustomed, ever since he was a boy, to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing around inside his head. And that's very interesting to me because it, in, in this context, is talking about, like, ideas and, and um, it's talking about uh, more concepts and, like, academic principles. But I think this was written in uh, probably the 1930s, 1940s. 1942. Uh, my copy here says 1941. Yeah, 1940s, close enough. Um, 
And so he's talking a lot about ideas. I think in 2022, if I was to deign to rewrite a work by C.S. Lewis, I would say instead of ideas or philosophies, I would say moralities. Mm -hmm. Because if you just look at, say, for instance, a very um, non-partisan, a very common idea that doesn't ruffle too many feathers if you're talking about abortion and um, the different moralities that comes into play there. On one side, you have these people that are all about women's rights. They're all about equality. They're all about um, helping women. They're all about uh, serving people. This mm-hmm. is the, the left ideas. They talk a lot about you know protecting people's rights, uh, wanting to give them free money, wanting to pay for all of these things for them. But then they also say, ah, well, you can actually kill this person whenever you really want to. And so these these conflicting moralities of seeking to protect life and um, protect people who are living on the streets, they want to protect and do everything they can to make those people as comfortable as possible. But then at the same time, they say, well, life isn't really all that valuable because until they pass the two inches outside of the birth canal, then uh, they're not really people yet. Yeah, the idea of um, morals and ethics and, like, where do they come from? I think that um, in, each, in each person's lifetime, there's, there's a moral question um, that manifests or, or arises that we're, we're plagued with, at least one. Um, so I, I think a lot of, you know, as, as we look at it, and hopefully most people listening would know, I feel like um, a lot of C.S. Lewis's works were actually reactionary you know, to the world around him mm-hmm. that were occurring. You know, this was written in the middle of World War II, kind of challenging some of these ideas of, you know, how can we have, um, you know, viewpoints that appear to be, you know, we, we say that we're moral and that we're loving, or, or the Germans say that they're moral and loving, but yet their actions mm-hmm. um, are the antithesis yeah. of loving and compassionate or done so under the guise of um, only fulfilling their own gain. You know, so that idea of like morals, which are, I think when you look at the root word, it comes down to like customs or, or customary things sure. that are practiced by society or culture, um, which I think is an interesting concept because it almost, it almost is built into the definition um, that most academics would use um, to allow those to be moldable and pliable to, to fit their own serving, I which see. I almost find, mm-hmm. uh, it, which I do find very disconcerting that the idea that morality can be created to be self-serving at mm-hmm. the expense of others. Yeah. I think, um, you know, speaking of C.S. Lewis and, and the works that he's written, he, uh, well, I think it's in the first or second chapter of Mere Christianity where he talks about that, and he talks about morals and how there is actually a, a true set of morals that is actually the, what the idyllic society would have. And um, we haven't actually seen a society that has different morals. Because one of the arguments that is often used against Christianity and the morals that Christianity brings is, oh, well, we can't judge the morals of other societies. Because other societies have different morals. And C.S. Lewis contends that, well, actually, no, they really don't. 
because we have yet to find a society that promotes backstabbing as good work. Right. And we have to some degree. I mean, even if you look at the last two years um, in America, it's like people were encouraged to turn in their neighbors if they had 10 people at their house because of COVID. They were encouraged to call the police on people who didn't wear masks and and they were encouraged to do that and after a while we saw people begin to resist those ideas which just goes to show you that there is actually a moral backbone that people fall back on and it's the outcasts that don't fit into that moral society that would take advantage of this counter moral that promotes that Anyways, what C.S. Lewis was saying in, in that book is, or in the beginning of the first chapter, is we really haven't had a society, at least ways, not a prosperous society that has completely opposite morals to the ones that we currently have, that promotes cowardice, that honors violence, reckless violence. We haven't had a society that promotes that and actually honors that. So we don't have, there is no moral relativism it doesn't actually exist there's different ways to act upon the morals which even that i think there's has to be a proper way but i i think where we where morality starts to um decay or shift oftentimes is dependent upon who is um who's the figurehead or who is the ruling authority we Mm -hmm. may have referenced in, in in the last conversation we had the idea of two um, of the most fascinating psychological experiments that will never be recreated because of their repercussions, mm-hmm. which was the Milgram experiment and mm-hmm. the Stanford prison trials. I can't remember Ooh, one of those, yeah. but one of the concepts was that, um, uh, or one of, I think the statements out of one of those studies was absolute power corrupts absolutely. absolutely. So I mean, when we see a, a breakdown in morality, the question I frequently ask myself is, is this view or perception held in isolation? Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I've, I've discovered over the course of my life is um, I like to think of myself as a fairly linear person, which is abnormal in the work that I do, that I would think linearly, um, think in a linear manner from A to B. Um, but I really Why examine... Why do you think that is? Um, Working in the field of social work, it's where I think um, one of the things that's often said is it's a continuum of gray where I tend to see black and white. Mm-hmm. Like gray, if gray has to be categorized between black and white, it's not saying there's a third option. It's saying you have to classify. Mm-hmm. And if we look at gray possessing a, um, a quality of the absorption of of light and not total reflection mm-hmm. or black, then gray would fall into that category. But what I found interesting is when you look at morality, oftentimes what's um, rejected and people aren't a big fan of is when you apply that logic to other areas, um, often That's creates you know a lot of hostility um, when it comes to a lot of topics. So, did I ever tell you uh, this story? It's a, it was like a dream that somebody had. I, I really got to find who it was. So honestly, it could have just been a completely made-up story. But um, 
I heard of this this story this guy was telling, and I think it was on like uh he he wrote it in an article or something, and I really gotta try to find who it was. Um, cat attacking my <laughs> notes. Um, I really gotta try to find who it was, but he told the story about <laughs> morality. The cat is highly intrigued by the, the notes cat for today's is just topic. Attacking. So my notes that I printed out on paper and there's no dissuading. I don't it, know so if I that's uh, in support of the idea of we need more morality or if yeah, I don't know. cats are opposed to it. If they're able I, I sense it's cats, I'm going to assume it's highly opposed when you're trying to eradicate the notes. But <laughs> um, anyways, I apologize if you guys can hear that, but there's really no dissuading this cat. It just bit me. Um, this guy is telling a story about on the side of good and the side of evil. And in between there, he saw this fence mm-hmm. and um, he was looking, I, I think this was uh, a pretty renowned atheist. And so he's looking at the side of God and the side of Satan. And he decided he was going to sit on the fence and watch what was transpiring and think, mm-hmm. man, those people are crazy. but Those people are crazy too. And then he saw this dark shadowy figure walk up to him and he goes, Oh, I'm glad you chose my side. And the guy looks at him and then says, well, I didn't choose that guy as pointing to the white the mm-hmm. side of God. And then he looks like, I didn't pick that, but I definitely didn't pick you. And the figure responds to him and says, well, sure you did. You're sitting on my fence. Mm. And so it's the, the concept, and this is something that I believe in, and I think I've turned certain people off to me because, as we were talking even before this, something I think I've discovered about myself is I'm a pretty... Um, um, I wouldn't necessarily say dogmatic, but I'm a pretty black religious. And white, yeah. I'm a very black and white person, not religious in the sense, but I'm. I definitely don't have a lot of compromise, and I I apply that maybe more broadly than I should at large. Maybe there is a certain area for for grayness, but I'm colorblind anyways, so it's like. <laughs> um, but I really like that, and I apply that to a lot of areas and in, in conversations that I have uh, with people, even like conversations that I have at my job at the research lab, um, we, we, there's a lot of downtime when we're waiting mm-hmm. for things and when time's really slow, and we talk about kind of more abstract ideas. And as the, the only guy who works in this lab, I do get uh, questioned a lot. I get interrogated quite <laughs> often. Uh, as and also, as like, the only like Christian that, like, as we talked about also before, we're kind of a different kind of Christian than a lot of people. Um, just because we're not really like we don't have a denomination, we kind of just believe in the Bible, and mm-hmm. so I get interrogated on those grounds a lot too. And I think I uh, confound a lot of people with the uh, the perspectives that I have on the fact that there I don't really think that gray exists. It's either going to be a shade of black or it's going to be a shade of white. Well, and that speaks to the statement that um, silence can be deafening because a lack of a response is a response in itself. I think so. It's, it's often permissive of the rhetoric that's going on in that moment. The deepest places in hell are reserved for those who maintain their neutrality in a time of moral crisis. Dante Alighieri. Which is so true. And also like the idea of darkness. Like darkness is the absence mm-hmm. of light. So the fact that that morality is not only what we do, but it's also our response to the things occurring around us. It's what we don't do as well. 
And I think that's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is what is my, what is my response as a statesman, um, mm-hmm. as, as a friend, as a um, Christian? Like those are the things we have to evaluate our response in mm-hmm. being um, of the faith our stance is that morality comes from God, absolute truth. Absolutely. And, and that derives from, from the Bible and from mm-hmm. God, you know, and I think that gives us an opportunity where we should be more vocal mm-hmm. in love about issues that we see. Um, and, and we can miss the mark. So um, for yeah. anybody listening, I can tell you a great argument never to use I used it once, um, never to be used again, but it was in a conversation of abortion. And um, a lady said to me, well, you don't have any right to say anything because you're a man. And so it, it, doesn't, in, it doesn't impact you. Like you'll never become pregnant. I thought, well, that's a very valid point. But once again, I like to apply logic um, universally. universally. So my response was, you don't deserve anything to say because you never know. You've never known what it's like to be aborted. Um, not out of love, ended very poorly. But once again, it was that universal application. Which of is technically logic. true. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying it. It wasn't productive for uh, dissuading the other side. Yeah, uh, probably made them further entrenched in crazy their Christian dude and a don't argument. Like, yeah, with all of my privilege. So. Yes, because you are white, so you have all the privilege, and you went to college. I did so. twice. That's double privilege. Double privilege. <laughs> double privilege. Um, so I, I think that's one of the things we have to examine as we have a response, but our response has to be seasoned mm-hmm. with love and with grace and humility, which was absent at that moment. Yeah, and that's I th- what I think. Because there's, I've also learned about myself that I like to be a contrarian. Mm-hmm. I've learned a lot about myself since I started to go to college. One is that I'm, I'm a contrarian. Um, so I like to just argue with people for the sake of arguing. Like I've learned that, especially because a lot of the classes I've taken, just the professor, the way she set them up is uh, in a debate style. Mm-hmm. So you, and you don't always get to choose what side of the debate you're on. So I've argued pretty effectively, even on topics that I don't necessarily agree on, simply because I enjoy the act of debating mm-hmm. with people. What I've learned is that a lot of people actually don't know why they believe what they believe a lot of times, mm-hmm. which makes them very emotionally pliable. And right. so they usually respond out of emotion, and, and in which case it's very hard to actually dissuade them of a notion that they've gotten into their heads, um, which is always fun for me because I really like to <laughs> poke and prod. But it's also something that I've learned that you have to be understanding of that and you have to realize like, okay, at this point there's no point in me trying to talk any further because firstly, this person doesn't even know why they believe what they believe. Mm -hmm. So there's not going to be much of a benefit in me continuing this conversation. And if I do continue to talk with them then it needs to be out of a not, I'm not trying to dissuade their notions. I'm trying to understand why they believe it and maybe even help them understand why they think the way they do. And then, of course, you have to have the Holy Spirit involved because the Holy Spirit's the one that actually can change hearts and minds. So one of the most remarkable, I guess, um, revelations, we'll say, that I ever had was, um, you know, with, with all of my 
my schooling and that was looking at psychology and looking at how groups think and function mm-hmm. and operate and individuals and, and all of those things. And the idea of like what what provides motivation for people. And there's mm-hmm. two two categorical things. There's an um, an internal locus of control, which means I yeah. I find fulfillment, gratitude, and drive from within myself. It's all birthed out of me and my perception of the um, of who I am and how the world mm-hmm. operates. And then there's an external locus of control, yep. which means I allow my environment yeah. um, to control me. So one means that I, I don't have a strong sense and I'm not strongly grounded. I'm actually, you know, just kind of torn with the, the cultural um, and, the, and the, the masses and what they're thinking. Yeah. The other one is that I must always be right or centered and the one thing that the Lord actually revealed to me is that, that neither one of those are the goal. It's that we're supposed to have an um, eternal locus of control, that actually we focus on the biblical worldview yeah. and how he has instructed us to respond with humility and grace and also standing up for the person who's oppressed and standing up for what's right. Um, and it's not so much about what I want or what the culture may want or the people may want at the time, um, you know, it's really about that eternal purpose and that eternal destiny. And I think you have to be at a point where you're, you're willing to, um, to surrender to a point to get there, um, and to realize that you don't have it right a hundred percent of the time. Um, and not saying that just to dissuade somebody to, to come on your side or listen to you, well, but genuinely being open to, um, feedback and to see things done differently. Well, that's a great point, and I think that segues very nicely into what we also wanted to talk about, which is authenticity. One of the things that people need to see, people need to see when you're having a conversation with them about any of the things that we've talked about, um, is that you're actually authentic, mm-hmm. and that you actually like live the life that. Um, you're claiming that you believe in. And mm-hmm. uh, we, I think I was talking about this with my dad um, is people like to slam on Christians and you can ask them, well, how many Christians have you actually known? Well, one or two. Right. And, and then if one of them is me, well, it's like, well, unless I've said something that I didn't realize that really offended you, you've had a great experience knowing me. Right. And that's one of the things that we have to strive to be is we have to strive to be like Christ and act like Christ so we have that accountability to God, yes, but we also, as Christians, we have to have some sort of accountability to the people we're being Christians to. Because if we don't, then we're leading them astray, not by commission, by, by omission. We talked about by the fact of our neutrality and the actual mm-hmm. topic of the, liv- the livelihood of Christians. And that's one of the things that really turns a lot of people off is when they meet somebody like on our campus um, we have this guy who people have coined Bible bashing Bob um, uh. because he's the guy <laughs> that has the sign you're going to hell and literally has like a picture of a dude falling into a fiery pit and just screams at these kids, you are all going to hell. And it's like a lot of times those are the only encounters that they're going to have with a quote unquote Christian their entire tenure at the college. Mm-hmm. And that is not doing good. And it gives people like me or people like you or my brother or my dad a much, much harder time of it 
um, because they are when they think of a Christian, they think of them, they think mm-hmm. of that person, or they think of uh, one of our campus ministries, which I'm not going to name. But all they do is they walk around and say, "Have a nice day." A lot of times, they don't even say, "God bless you." They just hand you a bottle of water, mm-hmm. and that's great and that's good. But you still you're not getting a whole lot from that encounter. You're getting the act of compassion, yes, to a degree, the, the niceness of getting a bottle of water, but there are hundreds, literally hundreds of water bottling filling stations around. So it's a good thought, but even that act isn't as good as it could be because I have such a fortunate opportunity to be working at the research lab that I do where I can talk with them and like mm-hmm. actually have conversations with people. And that's where actual value can be added. Because not only do I have to get these conversations, but I also get the daily interaction and the daily um, intercession that I know I'm actually, I actually really do try to live the life that I've been telling you about. And that I think is the strongest testimony. So like the idea of that authenticity and being who we're designed to be and recognizing our strengths and our weaknesses, I think is imperative the interesting thing though is like we have this idea of authenticity and um, vulnerability and i think Mm -hmm. with the idea of vulnerability the other word that goes in tandem with that if if i'm choosing to be vulnerable to somebody there's a sense of accountability Mm -hmm. and there's um this phrase that really i guess it frustrates me because Mm -hmm. it's um it seems so frivolous you know, you got to live your life on your own terms or, mm-hmm. you know, follow your own truth. But I, I think that's a counter counterculture. And, and the reason why I say that, some people are, might be scratching their heads like, well, that's very much the mantra of today is follow your own truth. But interestingly enough, if somebody asked me, well, the um, phrase is an oxymoron, asked me, you know, um, did you file your taxes this year? And I said, well, you know, I'm following my own truth, and I decided I no longer need to be held accountable to the IRS. Um, people might be a little bit concerned by that statement or that approach. Mm-hmm. Or if um, you know, I got pulled over for speeding, and I said, you know, officer, I, I was just driving what I thought the speed limit should be here, and, and nobody was. There you go this again, time. applying logic throughout <laughs> uni- throughout. All of society. So, I mean, and we're looking at that on an individual level, but I think we have to look a little bit broader. Um, many of us in, you know, in the university setting, right? You have your, your um, professor and then you have a dean of the subject mm-hmm. and then you have like a dean of students and you have the president of the university. But even above that, you have the, um, the, the board members, the college yeah. board mm-hmm. and the, the board of trustees. And we see that in the corporate world too. Like yeah. you have, managers, directors, uh, and then you have the, you know, the council or whatever that mm-hmm. oversees that. So the idea that somehow my personal life and my, my faith and my morality somehow doesn't have to come under, I don't have to be authentic because the notion is I don't have to disclose that to anybody baffles me because in the corporate world and every other sector of our life, we strongly encourage accountability and transparency but somehow when it comes to spirituality and morality that goes out the window it does i've talked about that before it's a very epicurean idea 
we did an episode on that concept of live your own best life. One of the other things, since uh, throughout this episode, I've been talking about things I've learned about myself in the last year and a half, two years. Because I've also learned that I am very reductionist on a lot yeah. of ideas. Like I'll, I like to break things down to the most simple components, and I, I lose a lot of people on that conversation as well. But when you break down this, um, this uh, idea of live your own best life, or you just do you, or love that for you, I hear that all the time. Oh, I love that for you. Because people think like, oh, that's, <laughs> a, that's a very nice statement. But if you break down any one of those statements, you see that, oh, well, he is just doing him, and that's what he's supposed to do. That person is just simply supposed to do them. And if you look at that, that's such a selfish and conceited notion that, well, no, I deserve to do me because I know what's best in all circumstances at all ways and every time I know what I'm supposed to do. And we can look back at ancient origins and that idea really stems from Epicurus, which whose entire life work philosophy, I'm sure have you read any of his stuff or know about the Epicurean notion? Uh, it's probably been some time, but yeah. So it's essentially um, you have to live your life the maximum amount of sustainable pleasure possible. So the only thing that um, Epicurus got right in my, uh, in my opinion um, is that overindulgence is also a sin, mm-hmm. but also so is underindulgence. So there has to be a perfect, happy medium of living your own best life. Mm-hmm. And so he um, had chastised his followers for getting married because marriage is an act of uh, sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And if you have so much love for another person, then you could lose love for yourself, and that's bad, which is a, a crazy notion. Um, mm-hmm. But it's something that, at large, the entire world has adopted, at least the entire Western world. And, and I think that's interesting because you kind of question that growth model, right? If there's no uh, reproduction amongst members, it's probably not going to, uh, yeah, it's not going withstand to much time. Um, so that's an interesting concept. And it's fascinating how um, you probably like this book called The Parasitic Mind, um, but it's, a, it's an idea pathogen is a term that this guy coined. His name's Gad Sad. Uh, he's a psychologist um, who hasn't made it nearly as mainstream as Jordan Peterson, but just because he's a much... Uh, he's a very he's a very interesting fellow. Uh, he's very like... Oh, what's the word that you can even use? He's an extreme contrarian. Okay. Like much more than Jordan Peterson is, but he's very... He really doesn't care what you think about him at all. Uh, he's very funny, though. But he wrote this book called The Parasitic Mind, and he talks about idea pathogens and how easily idea pathogens spread and how they spread a lot in um, education and academics and academia at large. But that's what I think it is, is we have these idea pathogens that spread around, um, and that's how the, I- the Epicureanism has spread for so many years is through this... Because it's a very, it's a very self fulfilling model of existence. It's a very um, self beneficiary model of philosophy. It's like, oh well, yeah, it is good for me. Because when you look at those things, when you look at these kind of philosophies, everybody has a philosophy, mm-hmm. and when you follow philosophy, y- the basic assumption is that this is morally good for me to do. 
And so if you have a philosophy that says it is morally good, honorable, and righteous for me to live my own best life, well, that's obviously you can see how problematic that can become. Um, and th- that idea, that Epicureanistic idea is interesting. You know, that they would, um, they would abhor the idea of marriage because it, it's, you have to relinquish some of your love for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, caused me to kind of reminisce on a um, article by Abe Euler, and he's talking about, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Abraham, um, and then Abraham Lincoln, and he was on a journey to a, a speaking engagement, mm-hmm. and there was nobody else around. It was the person driving the stagecoach, um, as the story goes, and there was a, um, a drowning pig, mm. and um, he insisted that they stop the stagecoach so they could rescue pig. the pig. And the idea was that that was such a selfless act because, you know, it required work. It was an interruption in the, in the day in that. And the response was that it actually wasn't a selfish act because, the, um, as, as the story goes, it, it, Abraham actually said, had I not stopped and rescued the drowning pig, mm-hmm. I would have been plagued with the guilt of knowing I could have done something and yeah. chose not to. So it's actually a selfish act. Yes. So the idea is, is is there such thing as a truly selfless act? Uh, It's kind of the notion that it it questions. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at something like marriage or children or civic service, uh, the one thing we know is as we have relationships and we have those interactions, it gives us... um, it gives us a dopamine hit, right? Yeah. So that idea that, like, yes, there is some work that I put in, but I also receive a return it's from it, and that requires me to be. Yeah. You know, that's the idea of vulnerability. It requires an initial sacrifice for a deeper sense of accountability and relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and the absence of that really creates artificial relationships. And if we look at societies where there's a lack of vulnerability. And there's a lack of accountability. What what government systems are we typically left with? Those that are Marxist, those that, that are communistic, um, or a total, you know, an absolute monarchy, um, mm-hmm. or you know, those where somebody holds absolute power, and we see an immense amount of suffering of the, not only the rulers but also those that are subjugated under the ruler's authority. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would almost ask the question, you know, those who have no accountability in their life that, that lack mentors, that lack um, spiritual authority, you know, it would be interesting to see research data on their their happiness or maybe not happiness. That's a hard thing to quantify. Their sense of fulfillment, I think, would be an easier metric. And where that is versus those that have mm-hmm. agreed to subjugate themselves under, you know, spiritual authority um, and yeah, under mentorship. It would be very interesting. I think I think I would I could deign to predict that, but I'm using of of course the, the most evil book of all time, the Bible, <laughs> to the, the all the anyways. Um, I I think I could predict what category of people would have more fulfillment. And that mm-hmm. would be, of course, the people 
under the the Christian doctrine simply on the fact that um, God has placed eternity into the hearts of man. Yes. And people, what was I reading? I think it was probably in Hebrews. People always swear by something greater than themselves Mm -hmm. because there is something greater than ourselves. So people, um, inherently people do like to serve when they can get over themselves because it is a selfish act to help other people because there's something in our brains that gives us a dopamine release. It's almost as if our brains were designed with that in mind, that it is actually rewarding for you to serve other people first. I think that's something that people don't really give credence to and don't think about a lot, is if there is this ability in our minds to help other people, and when we Mm -hmm. do it, we get this unexplainable sense of fulfillment that comes from this dopamine release. We've learned about it since then, since the first notions came to us. But it's almost as if maybe we're supposed to do more of that. Because I think that's something that people don't think about in the scientific communities is there's a lot of things that's like people believe evolved that we gained. Like, oh, well, we've uh, evolved this... um, certain biological things that we do, biological traits that we have. Um, Jordan Peterson talks about how he thinks that we, our eyes used to not all be all white. I don't necessarily think that's true. There's no, we have no way to predict that or figure out about that. But we develop these biological senses over time because it's our bodies and our brains teaching us to do different things that are more rewarding well, why wouldn't we think about that in the sense of the dopamine we get in our brain when we're helping other people? So I, that's an interesting notion, right? Because we have like physiology, mm-hmm. which nobody can deny exists, right? So there's physiological and neurological responses to different things. And like on our last talk, I won't belabor the topic. So there's physiological responses to mm-hmm. uh, adverse experiences or trauma, which is a buzzword. Yep. Um, so there's physiological responses and there's neurological responses. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the notion is that somehow that that creates a hindrance. But I think we have to look on the flip side that those negative experiences also can have a positive um, yeah. impact. You know, the idea of um, those negative experiences can cause you to, to ensure that you don't model that same behavior yeah. that you – Receive, so you no longer reciprocate it. You actually make an effort to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Happen again. You more so seek out ways to mitigate that risk. So mm-hmm. there's different things, and I think that we have tried to quantify everything, and in a sense, we lose we lose individuality and we lose authenticity because there's different mm-hmm. roadblocks that can be put in place. And I think here's my question though. Is losing individuality a bad thing? Um, I, I would say losing individuality, the one thing that we don't want to lose is our vision and our purpose, which isn't only to serve ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe losing some of our own preconceived notions or ideas isn't necessarily a bad thing, but we must our always remain... Biases fixated on our purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Because most things could be um, used in multiple different dimensions. 
or, or different ways. Um, for instance, the philosophical bean cup of coffee that I have here, mm-hmm. I could... The best coffee. It is a great coffee. I could use this ceramic mug as a hammer. It probably wouldn't fare too well, mm-hmm. and a regular hammer would use be much more useful. So I think we must not... We must make sure that we don't lose our sense of purpose and what we're designed to do. Um, this is designed to hold a, a great cup of coffee mm-hmm. um, and not to be a hammer. I could use it as a hammer, but it's not going to fare that's as true. well as a, as an actual hammer. So that's, I may have circumvented the question, but I guess that is my take on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so a sense of a loss of individuality to an extent that allows me to receive input and additional insight that I might not have in the moment, I think is essential for growth and development. Um, you know, and, and with that, we have to make sure that things aren't so boiled down in essence to just to statistics because there's mm-hmm. outliers and stats. True. They tell us kind of what the, the general trend is. Yeah. Um, so I will speak on a personal sense on how statistics aren't, they don't always determine the outcome. And when you're vulnerable, that it creates an opportunity for growth to happen, positive growth. Mm -hmm. So if we look at statistics, one of the things that we could look at is household income. Yeah. Uh, Lower household income typically leads to lower rates of education, Mm -hmm. generational poverty. Mm -hmm. We can look at other data. If we look at single parent households where there's an absent parent, typically that leads to lower academic performance, increased yeah. poverty, higher likelihood of divorce later in life. Yeah. If we look at um, individuals who witness or experience, you know, household violence or domestic violence, those are likely to be um, perpetrators of those things. Sure. Um, so without getting into the weeds of all that, we also look at things that we quantify. We put children on like 504s and education to modify their learning experience and IEPs. Mm-hmm. Um myself experienced all of those things so by statistics i should be lower income divorced um abusive and of a limited background well since you're white we can say (laughs) we we could say that none of those things matter but the idea that you know that uh, i would say in my life with an opportunity to be vulnerable and held accountable i have been able to rise above those. Um, I don't have a Mercedes yet. I probably would never have a Mercedes. That's just not my goal in life. But, you know, being able to graduate college twice with honors, um, happily married to... Gentle flex there. Gentle flex. Happily married to my wife, um, Mm -hmm. my three kids, you know, in a healthy marriage and um, kind of breaking some of those trends and, and demonstrating there is, you know, an opportunity to deviate from that. And I Absolutely. wonder sometimes if we don't allow people to be authentic and we tell them this is who you have to be without giving them a chance to operate outside the mold, do they yeah. just comply sometimes? I think I think that's definitely the case. I think um, I think people can only rise to the level of expectations that they have for themselves. Mm-hmm. And because you just – there's something about – if it's just something about the way that our, our brains operate or, or what it is, but if we don't have high expectations for ourselves, there is no way 
that we can become greater than the expectation that we have. So and if we're looking at something like an idea like critical race theory, mm-hmm. we're, we're telling a whole generation and a whole people group that, oh, well, you guys are actually inferior because of oppression by white people, which is true. I mean, slavery did happen. There's no way of getting mm-hmm. around that. But is the best method, is the best way of going about making recompense for that, um, telling people that, oh, well, because of white people, you will never be as good as white people. So we have to help you. We have to make give all of these concessions for you. We have to give you different math because math is racist. We have to do all of these things because inherently you are inferior. Now, in my opinion, that is a very racist statement. Mm-hmm. And it's not giving people good ideas is about themselves. It's not giving them a high expectation for what they're able to accomplish. And a lot of people, I hope, aren't truly affected by that. But I think there are people that truly do buy into that notion. So it's kind of, in essence, the statement, I think, therefore, that I am, or yeah. others think, therefore, that I am. Rene Descartes, I think, said that. Yes. Was it Descartes? Yeah. yeah, I believe it was Descartes. Yeah. So it's, it's that interesting concept that... Um, as we say things that our words carry an immense amount of, of weight Mm -hmm. and um, expectation. It's like one of the things that I, I thought was a very telling statement is uh, of course our president gave us a speech very recently that people have made into many memes. But one of the things that he said was, I believe in this with my whole soul, which I think is very telling because a lot of people would have said spirit. Um, or my whole heart, mm-hmm. but he said soul, which I think is very interesting. It carries a connotation that's lesser than that of my whole entire spirit, or even because I think heart and spirit are oftentimes more mixed in language than it's heart and soul. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he said, "I believe in this with my whole soul," I think is very telling, because we, uh, um, at least as Christians, I tend to think of soul as more fleshly. Mm-hmm. Less pure, more emotional, um, mm-hmm. which I thought I just I just thought of that as you said that, but so that I did, and I think that makes us. I, I think that's a question we should ask ourselves you know, as a people, um, wherever you're listening from. You know, whether you're in the U.S. or maybe you're from abroad and have Parliament um, mm-hmm. that that rules um, where you're at. But that that idea of what what our leaders say and how we respond to that. And have we placed our, have we placed governmental leadership or church leadership or, you know, a board of directors, have we elevated them to a status that they were never meant to hold? Have we made them somehow divine when they're not? And do we look to them for divine authority mm-hmm. when that's something they were never designed to play? I think, as a consequence of our shunning of Christian doctrine and Christian beliefs, <coughs> we can't get rid of our necessity for the divine mm-hmm. because inherently, as I said before, inherently eternity is placed in our hearts. But So there's no way of, of uh, getting rid like... So I'm trying to think of an example, but I'll finish my thought first. So um, there's no way of getting rid of our need for the divine... Instead, we just p- replace it with other things. So it's displaced. 
It's just displaced. And I think we tend, like I, as I said, we always swear by somebody greater than us. So we always try to find somebody that in our estimations we believe to be better, mm-hmm. whether or not they are. And I think a lot of people, maybe not anymore because of what's happened in the last couple of years, but for a long time, people believe that to be our members of Congress, our presidents, our governors, our all of these other people who are in our government, we used to think these are the best of us. Like, I mean, think about the statement, uh, cities used to say of their police, well, this is New York's finest, with NYPD or mm-hmm. Perrysburg's finest. But now we don't think of police like that at all. And that it could be for many reasons. And um, I tend to be in favor of the police when they're doing good things. But people used to think of our governmental leaders as the best parts of society, just what you represent us. And so we definitely turned them into the guy, I think. And I, I think that robs them of the opportunity to be authentic and to exercise humility because they then feel the need to perform. Um, mm-hmm. in, in one of the hard lessons that I learned in life by seeing some of the people that I really looked up to um, have some failures was mm-hmm. the realization that I was it was never the person I never wanted to become that person that I saw, mm-hmm. but I did want to possess some of those traits and attributes that they carried. And I think that's where we displace things as we put our hope in our government or in other individuals yep. and, and we make them divine. We, we idolize them, um, hoping to become like them. And then when they, they fail um, and there's a failure or a breakdown, it, it leaves us almost at a complete loss yeah, sense of ourself on where do we go from here? Because I, all of yeah. our hope is displaced in this one thing. That it's a fascinating cool. idea. I actually talked about that on two podcasts ago because of this innate thing that we have that we recognize some uh, an attribute in somebody. I made the, the I think it's, recognition of an attribute of Christ in somebody, mm-hmm. inherently. Um, and I, I brought it up because I was talking about Jordan Peterson and what Jordan Peterson uh, talks about that. It's just a, an admirable trait. Right. But he thinks that, well, anything can be admirable. Uh, mm-hmm. Except for like, well, so there's something wrong with you if you find the tendency of a serial killer admirable. Like, obviously, there's something um, wrong with you if that is. But I say... If you admire somebody, it's not uh, just any requisite opinion. It's not just anything. Mm-hmm. It, is, uh, it, it is inherently a attribute of Christ that we recognize in somebody. And it could just be a single attribute, but that's what we find admirable in people. Because there is a universally admirable set of characteristics mm-hmm. that comes from these Christian values. It comes from the behaviors of Christ. And when we recognize that in people, we find it admirable. And then when we have them fail, when something happens, we feel gypped and we feel this sense of um, being lost because we have a hard time disassociating the failure with the mm-hmm. part that we saw good. Well, and, and when we create something or someone and elevate them to a divine status... Mm-hmm. We really rob them, and we 
see this in government. We see this um, sometimes in churches where we when we elevate somebody to that status, typically it's after that that we see a breakdown mm-hmm. because they feel that they can't be vulnerable um, or exercise humility because it reduces their ability to lead effectively. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest um, notions. And you know, as we circle back to um, the idea, the concept of faith, right? And in, in the Christian faith, we see Jesus who exercised humility mm-hmm. and who also subjugated himself you know, to the Father. But we also see that he was held accountable to the disciples. He, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't that they lorded over that him, but it was that they had these shared experiences and a, a shared sense of purpose in direction and some attributes. And they did miss the market time, so I, I, won't, um, I won't not acknowledge that. But the idea that he was able to be vulnerable and share things that he knew even would be difficult for them to understand mm-hmm. and um, be willing to go along with. You know, and, and we see that countless times throughout the scripture. I mean, they have this idea of like what the Messiah should be. And when he basically said, I'm not your guy, I think that took an immense amount of humility because they were looking for somebody to you know, overthrow the government yep. and, uh, and deliver them. And when he said, that's not what I'm here to do, I, I think sometimes we miss the mark of how much humility and vulnerability, you know, that that, that took on his end. Um yeah, I don't think we think about that very often, especially as as Christians. We think of him as as Jesus and um the fact that he didn't, but I I never thought about that like how did he feel about cuz we know that he was fully yeah. man. I um, mean, he's basically saying this whole image that you have of me and all these hopes and ambitions, I'm not able to fulfill that because that's not who yeah. I'm designed to be. Yeah, I wonder if he ever like, wanted to. Like, I wonder if he ever, like, I feel like he probably didn't. It would be interesting. Mm-hmm. I never really thought about that before, what he would have thought of how the people were sp- wanted to perceive him as this this person who uh, wanted to overthrow the government, was supposed to be this re- warrior. It's interesting. I mean, I think we all have those moments in our life, right, where somebody sees us in a certain light, and we know that we're not that person, Right, they think more highly of us than what they ought. Yeah, and when we have to reveal that, or mm. when we choose to reveal that, or when it gets revealed, right? I think that's a <laughs> very, I think that's a very um, manly problem. Like, yeah, not like a manly, but like a problem that men deal with. Yeah, is this like they talk about it in Wild at Heart? Like every man feels like he was fraud in some aspects. You know, so to to reveal that and be vulnerable is a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. For most people, um, so we we see that, mm-hmm. you know. So looking at that, I, I think we we can recognize humility and authenticity um, when it comes to our faith as like Jesus becoming fully man, you know, going through some of those experiences, dying on the cross. But that idea of like when he said, "Yeah, I'm not your guy. I'm not here to overthrow the government. That's not my purpose. That's not the way this was designed." I think that mm-hmm. takes humility. Because he didn't sit in silence. He actually spoke out. Yeah. You know, so that idea of like, how do we speak out and speak out with love, with compassion and grace, with the issues at hand? Because we are called we? to respond. I, how do we? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 
we have to be willing to to respond and interact with Holy Spirit and follow the directives mm-hmm. um, that He gives us. And, and the way we do that is we also compare that right with the Word, with the mm-hmm. Bible, right? Because they should they should align. There should be alignment there. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be contrary to what the written Word says versus what Holy Spirit tells us. Those should be in tandem. We were talking last night. Um, my parents got back from their trip. We went out to dinner. We were talking about that. And um, we were talking because uh, I've been reading the screw tape letters and listening to it again. And uh, one of the things that C.S. Lewis says about it is we should know that demons exist, but we shouldn't be too interested in them. Right. And the question has to be after that is, well, why? And you, you made the point we have to listen to Holy Spirit. And I think they're for the same reason, because the spirit other, I think mm-hmm. I talked about this before, is interpreting the spirits that speak to us, and sometimes it's very hard to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about those uh, notions and similar notions that we won't get into now, but similar notions that follow along with that, and it's for the reason that it is, it is very hard sometimes to know what spirit we're of, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of to... Um, use terminology that is uh, in vogue these days there's a lot of christ presenting <laughs> spirits um mm-hmm. and spirits that seem good such as this uh intellectual spirit uh that i think goes hand in hand with epicureanism this uh intellectualism is very appealing to us because it makes us feel smart and there's a lot of arguments that can be made on behalf of christianity that are intellectual we can make a lot of academic arguments for christianity such as the best societies that ever existed in the world have been based on judeo-christian values a uh, case in point america one of the objectively greatest nations that ever existed all based on judeo-christian values but is that the point is the point to create the best societies in existence well, no, it's not, because we know that nothing in this world lasts forever. Right. The point is not to create uh, a metropolis. The point is mm-hmm. to create believers. And if those believers create a metropolis, then great. But we know, based on the Bible, that nothing like that will last. And, and it's that idea that we have to, we have to apprehend that there's, there's something bigger, there's something larger than just myself, you know, um, the one notion and the one comment um, that often is out there. Well, what about people who aren't exposed to this? And I, um, the one, the one verse that really jumped out to me because I had this thought when I was younger, like what, what happens to people who never hear the gospel? And the passage of scripture that jumped out to me was creation itself testifies to the existence of God. So no man is left without it. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse. So I had like that revelation of that scripture, mm-hmm. but I also remember three years ago, um, spending a week with my wife on an Alaskan cruise and looking out through Glacier National Park mm-hmm. and that scripture really becoming alive to me because the vastness of the beauty of untouched landscape by man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are likely the cultures that would never encounter like the idea of like Judeo-Christian mm-hmm exposure in christ the name um so i think if we like if we're to reduce down 
like the the topic of the conversation in my mind today, the big takeaway is um, that hopefully the listeners got is the idea that there's a need for us to be authentic, but mm-hmm. to exercise humility to come under um, the uh, to come under authority that is gracious and humble that, that promotes growth for us yeah. um, and it isn't self-serving and the only place that I've ever found that authority is in the Christian faith and under Christ and under godly church leadership yeah. um, to do that you know but that mm-hmm. idea that also we, we run the risk right because we like to replicate things because that's what we've done right we find things that work and we try to replicate them or yeah. come up with new ways but we run the risk at doing that we become obsessed with that idea of what that leadership looks like and to somehow make it divine and mm-hmm. miss the point entirely. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it, it almost makes you sc- me scratch my well, head. Well, one of the degree. things that is interesting on, on your point of trying to replicate things is if you look at um, society now, okay, uh, even 20 years ago, 40 years worth of years ago, we looked at people who had a bachelor's degree. And we thought, this is the best of the best. We need to get more of this. Mm-hmm. And so now we've replicated it over and over and over again. And it's like the telephone game. <laughs> what is a bachelor's degree now is, well, firstly, it's almost useless. Like, it's not like there's still statistics that say, but then there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. So, but we look at people now getting bachelor's degrees and uh, there's been this inflation of the degree. And so to really get anywhere in academia, to get anywhere in big business, you need to have a master's degree now. Mm-hmm. To do a lot of things that a bachelor's degree would have afforded you. But anyways, the point of what I was saying is we look at people with bachelor's degrees and we look at academics at large and we think, well, this is kind of a parody of what it once was. Like college campuses are now notoriously known for these mind viruses that just kind of spread. And we know that, well, that's kind of a joke now, especially because this is the information age. Anything, uh, I saw this website that actually, I forget what it's called. I have it saved because I want to look into it a little bit more. Um, But it actually, it's a a get around of MIT classes. Okay. So you can actually like enroll and get all of the lectures posted by professors at MIT's campus. You can get them all for free on this website. So you can literally get an MIT degree for free. And you just think about that and you think, well, then what the heck am I going to college for at this point? Apart from the fact that you simply just need to get this stamp Mm -hmm. on a piece of paper. But we look at this cloning of everything in society, and after a while we just know based on nature, based on a lot of science that when you just keep copying and pasting, copying and pasting, it gets a little bit more and more distorted over and over and over and over again. I think that's where we are with our culture now. We've just copied and pasted things that we've known have worked in the past without any hint of originality. Well, and that idea that there's there's some point, at some point there's an apex, and sometimes there's an adjustment yeah. for more additional growth. And I think we're, we're, we're at that point where we're seeing that a little bit culture and I think one of the unique things that we're seeing this year is mindset about culture and societies we have certain professions Mm -hmm. where people are vacating it um, 
at alarming rates. Um, so we see law enforcement, we see people mm-hmm. leaning traditional healthcare as we know it. And the other thing that, um, you know, just based on life experience and what I see, is we see teachers vacating the profession at an alarming um, rate. And interestingly enough, uh, with my wife going into education but not having an educational degree, but having an opportunity for mentorship, um, on-the-job learning, mm-hmm. and self-paced learning, that our culture is beginning to value that again. Yeah. And I kind of question, like, what what will come of these specialized degrees, you know, as society goes along? Because we're, we've somehow, like you said, we've made that degree divine instead of looking at the actual attributes that are needed to successfully carry out the work that needs to be done. Um, so we've we've made something divine and we've elevated it versus looking at the attributes that are needed. Yeah, and like even just the necessity for it. I think that's one of the things that is interesting about uh, the God that we serve versus other gods. If you look at um, history and mythology, like what purpose did Zeus actually serve? Like they made this this person divine, but really he was a bane to a lot of people's existence, <laughs> right? Like he was a uh, like he didn't do anything. But if you look at the God that we serve, uh, Yahweh, he had a purpose to serve, obviously. But one of the ones that we see in the Old Testament is he was the salvation of his nation. So mm-hmm. he chose the the Israelites and saved them out of captivity, which of course is a a, a beautiful. Um, allegory for what he does for us he saves us out of what we thought was good because like if you look at the story of egypt when he got out they said let us go back to egypt because (laughs) it was good back then obviously it wasn't but they on their journey they thought back and looked at it and thought that oh that was better but then when they actually Mm -hmm. arrived into the land flowing with milk and honey they found their promised land and that's of course a beautiful allegory for our own journey we get Mm -hmm. Where God finds us where we are and says, you are okay the way you are. I accept you as you are. I accept you while you are in Egypt, but I have a much better place that I'm going to take you. Come as you are, but you can't stay there. Yeah, come. And that's what people really, really hate about the Christian religion is, well, you guys don't accept me for who I am. No, we do, but you can't stay that way. You are, in fact, accepted. You are welcome to come in. But if you desire to stay here... You have to get better. You have to transform from glory to glory. So that idea of, you know, and, and I feel like we've we've deviated, so maybe we can reduce it down to like kind of um, some of the key takeaways. But as we talk about Israel and being a chosen people and being a people of, of faith, mm-hmm. um, I remember in undergrad, I had a professor that taught my world religions class. Mm-hmm. Um, really fascinating. And just some backstory. Um they lived in, he was in Canada. His mother was from England and went to the Church of England. Mm-hmm. I think his father was Catholic. Mm-hmm. They became Lutheran. Uh, mm. They were both professors. Um, and he was a latchkey child that was raised by his nanny, who is Jewish. And he actually converted to the Jewish faith. Interesting. Um, but he said there's this um, notion, you know, that, the Jews are God's chosen people. And he said, mm-hmm. you think that that would assume that we would have preferential treatment for all things. And he said, you know, but things that are our favorite or that we've chosen sometimes are subjected to, you know, difficult trials because we know they can withstand it. Mm-hmm. And with the building of character, 
kind of that notion of like our favorite um, book is probably more worn out than any other book on our shelves. Our favorite pair of sneakers um, probably will wear down quicker than any other because they're they're trustworthy, they're tried and true, mm-hmm. uh, and we know they can withstand. Um, you know what comes their their way yeah. because we've built them up, we've elevated like, them. Like just to look status. at the story of Job. Yeah, like, look at look at my chosen servant. This is there is not a man on earth like him. Now let's give him boils and rashes and make his all of his life completely and miserable. then restore everything Kill, and then restore it tenfold at the end. But that idea that chosen um, or special sometimes means you know trials, suffering yeah. for the development hardship. of character. I think to it's withstand because that, they have, have to have greatest them. potential for growth. And I think one of the key factors is humility and that um, understanding of them being authentic and who they're designed to be. Well, I think nature purpose. is beautiful in its illustration of that very point because if you want the most beautiful diamond, it has to go over the most intense pressures. If you want to send something the farthest possible in the trajectory, you have to exert the most force on it initially. So like if you're looking at, uh, since I know about weapons and guns, if you want a bullet that's going to go very far, you need a lot of powder behind it, a lot of explosive potential to send it on its trajectory the farthest. Same thing with when we have, like, with Job. To get where he needed Job to go, he had to put him over or under immense pressure, but he knew that he would be able to withstand it. So it's almost like, through our conversation, we, we kind of discussed the idea that um, I'm really big on the idea of reverse engineering, right? Like morality was like the top step, which we started with and kind of went down and feel we've circumvented and come back. Um, the morality is actually the top step. And to get there, you have to, to get to true morality, what morality should mm-hmm. be. Um, you have to be authentic. You mm-hmm. have to, to be honest about who you are. And you have to approach the things that you encounter with humility to to really even remotely come close to to achieving morality. Yeah. Um, you know, that those things are absolutely I think I think what necessary. we just I think what we just reached is to get to that, we have to understand that it takes difficulty, it takes trials, it takes tribulations, but the rewards are always better. Because we have this impact on other people. And we can only endure and get to that point by submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ mm-hmm. and um, Holy Spirit and God the Father, the true divine. Mm-hmm. And that I- any other um, things that we create divine yeah. create disappointment and, and hardship. Mm-hmm. And we almost have those moments um, that maybe not even by accident it allows us to recenter our focus to where it should be. Mm-hmm. Very good. I think that's a good place to end it. So the, we've gone an hour and 12 minutes and an hour and 15 minutes almost. So that's a good conversation, I think. I hope everybody uh, enjoyed that. I know we certainly did. Or at least I did. I did. I won't speak for As you. As always. So, all right. Well, thanks, Dustin. Thanks for coming on again. No problem. And, uh, Folks, I will see you next week with some more Food for Thought.